Repeating once again our top story, Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev has been removed from power and there are tanks now in the streets of Moscow. Mingling with the rush hour traffic, Red Army armored personnel carriers on the streets of Moscow this morning, heading to the Kremlin. They first moved in at 4 a.m., the first sign of the coup d'etat that removed Mikhail Gorbachev from power. For talking about rock, what role do you think rock did play? Yeah, rock plays a huge role. Groups like Kino, Aquarium, other groups start to play uh, words of Gorbachev and company to a younger generation. We've had enough, no more of this, we need change. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome to the Slavic Connection. Today we have Matt and Tom interviewing Dr. Tom Garza. So I took a class last year and we read an academic article about uh, how the Stingers brought down the Soviet Union, right? Right. Charlie Wilson's war deal. Then we read an academic article about the Stinger myth and about how that's a total myth. I was listening to Yuri Dud's uh, YouTube uh, show just yesterday and there was an economist on who was talking about uh, the economic reasons for the fall of the Soviet Union. At my undergraduate institution, my uh, professor, I think you know, Richard Robin, teaches a class called The Rock That Brought Down uh, the Soviet Union. Yeah. And so there's so many ideas, theories about, you know, why the Soviet Union collapsed. And it's really almost a cliche. It's like anybody in our region, it's like the first question that right. people are really think about. I mean, if you asked me, I think the real reason the Soviet Union collapsed is the political ideas of the people in power, Gorbachev and Yeltsin, and what, what right. they thought and why they thought about it. And it was just decisions they made that, that led to this. And so I mean, if we're talking about rock, what role do you think rock did play in the fall? Of well, I think you, you kind of hit it in this uh, shotgun approach of, you know, could it be, it was this, it was this, it was that, it was this. And yet it's kind of, in a sense, all of the above, right? And what rock's role plays in this was you, you focused on sort of the, the million dollar answer to the $2 million question. Of, so what exactly was it that brought it down? Well, I think it was, you know, Gorbachev, the politics, the new ideas. So how do those ideas get out there? Yeah. Not everyone could give a five kopeck piece to listen to Gorbachev or anybody else for that matter after 70 plus years of Soviet rule. So how did these ideas of change come about, especially for the generation under the age of 40 and indeed, rock plays a huge role. And yeah, Rich, Robin, and I, I think we're of one voice on this yeah, part. Yeah. Is we probably are leaning too much on that side that says it played the role. Uh, it certainly played one of the big roles because you've got titles of songs like Pirimian, uh, uh, We Want Change, right? Ban Kinol comes out with music right at the time Gorbachev has really elevated himself into the international scene. And you're getting songs that talk about Basta. We've had enough. No more of this. We need change. We want change. Uh, so groups like Kino, Aquarium, other groups start to play, echoing the themes of the uh, words of Gorbachev and company to a younger generation. And it does make a big difference. I mean, Soviet Union wasn't a voting institution, so it's not a matter of voting these people in or out, but rather having enough public support that you wouldn't have the threat of riots uh, m m more than there was already public public uh, despair in the streets and so forth. And rock music played a huge role in that.
been so gracious to bring your records to, to show us of, of these bands. Ooh, you, you know the right word for it, records, right? Yeah. <laughs> is, is that the right record? I, they, they, those are records, okay. LPs, those right? CDs, LPs, Those right? big CDs. Big CDs, right. big flat CDs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, and so when you first got to the Soviet Union, were, were you already interested in kind of Soviet rock and you started you know, kind of uh, grabbing these things and collecting them? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm of the right generation that that just, you know, the I literally remember one of my first life-changing, to use the transformative moments, being, you know, 19th February, 1964, uh, five years old and seeing the Beatles for the first time and just thinking to myself as, you know, as a, what can a five-year-old really think? Deep thoughts, but I do remember thinking, nothing's going to be the same from now on. Wow. It's all going to be different from now on. And wow. it, 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 was, it was, right? It really yeah. was. Um, so I've always been a big fan of music in general, rock in particular, and uh, getting to the Soviet Union, everyone was telling me, you're really going to have to look for it. It's not going to be, you know, you just can't go to the Sam Goody's or Tower <laughs> Records and pick up a right. bunch of rock music. And there was the singular Soviet music company, Melodia, that both recorded everything and sold, distributed and sold everything. And that's not where you'd go to find rock. You found other things there, other classical music and certain bands that were allowed, acceptable. Um, but no, you had to look for and ask for rock. But you, it was there. It was there, it was there if you asked, yeah. And so then, you know, at what point did... Um, you know, it's it's interesting on its own, just as, as mu- musically. Mm-hmm. At what point did you become kind of attuned to this kind of the political ramifications of this music in the seventies and, and early eighties? Yeah, I mean, very early on, because I I happened again happenstance, serendipity again, my one of my favorite words, fell into the Soviet Union just. My first trip there in 1979, 1981 is the date that uh, uh, my colleague Artemy marks all the time is this is when it changed for us. If for you guys, it was the Beatles appearing on Ed Sullivan. For us, it was 1981, February 1981, the opening of the Leningradsky Rock Club. The official Leningrad Rock Club was Brezhnev's um, nod to... There's not much we're going to be able to do about this, this being Uh the influx of more and more Western influence in the way of rock music, but we can at least try to to control it ourselves. And so this club, Leningrad was sort of the epicenter, more than Moscow was, of Western music getting in, a big port city and all makes a lot of sense, right? Reasons why Leningrad was kind of this, uh, its proximity, I think, to Western Europe and and uh, to Scandinavia that it got so much early on of Rolling Stones, Beatles, and so forth, not to mention what had already come in after the war of soldiers, allied soldiers, listening to what the Brits and the Americans were listening to from sure. home, boogie-woogie and so forth, sure. comes into the Russian context as, wait for it, boogie-woogie. And boogie-woogie <laughs> was the thing that begins the, the, the kind of trickle effect, trickle-down effect of more rock music coming in. Yeah, so the opening of Leningrad Rock Club was that now suddenly made it legit. You could go hear some real proper Russian rock, albeit with censored lyrics, and then you could ask for, you could you had to have the Russian again. That's one of the reasons we kept telling our students, learn, get your Russian <laughs> yeah. as good as you can, because that's how you get the answer to the questions yeah. that you don't even know you want to ask until Absolutely. you get there, right? And you ask, so what, were they, what are they really saying in this song? And quickly they scribble literally on the back of a cigarette pack. Hear the real lyrics that they can't sing in front of the audience right. because there's KGB all over right. the club. Le- legit, right? Wow. I mean, it's, that's how it was able to run. 
And did yeah. you re- regularly attend the the Leningradsky? Leningrad Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. It's where again you you got the names of the right bands, you got the sounds of what was going on. You now knew what to ask for. There's a wonderful scene actually in 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 Brat of him looking for Nautilus Pampilios records sure, and exactly. going from place to place, absolutely. only because he's he's heard of this. He doesn't have the actual CDs, and this is already in the early '90s, right? Mm-hmm. This is already post Soviet, yeah, yeah. and even then it was still so. I now know the name of the band now to track down the actual right. the disc or in our right. case the record the tapes it was still a lot of reel to reel and cassette when i was there in fact more than the print disc because all if you look all of the well if you see that all the print records have that melodious stamp if it wasn't printed officially it wasn't for sale right. so you had to get a an, a an illegitimate copy of it and and so when did you first meet Artemy Troitsky, who is the music journalist who was kind of so influential right. in this time? 1985. Okay. And uh, only with my uh, kind of pushing at him to see, because he said, you have to push me harder at this. My memory to those days is not all that clear. <laughs> we, we now remember, we both have reconstructed exactly when it was. I had gone, I was working in, um, uh, doing, doing my, my dissertation research, in fact, in Moscow, and had heard that there was a... Uh, an American uh, music uh, promoter, producer, Joanna Stingray. She just came out with a brand new book, actually, now remembering her time 40 years ago. I mean, we were all hitting that age where we're looking back to when we were younger in our days there. She actually got very into the Leningrad rock scene, even marries uh, one of the musicians there. She knew these bands intimately, truly. And I heard, heard that she was going to be filming and recording uh, the, 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 the base of a record that was going to be released in the West uh, called Red Wave. At that time, I'm not sure it had a, had a name even. We, didn't, we just knew it was called uh, Soviet Rock right. for a, a Western consumption. Yes. And because that was going on, a certain clump of the best bands, Aquarium, Kino, so Aquarium, Kino, uh, Strange Igri, Strange mm-hmm. Games was playing, and one more, Alisa, were all going to be playing at Leningradsky Rock Club. So that, I was, I'm going to be at that show live, die, whatever. And I got on the night train, got up there early the next morning um, to get in line. The line was already forming by 10 in the morning for that midnight show. Yeah, people lined up to see. So I got in line and inside I was introduced to as this kind of, you know, my handlers, as it were, uh, Soviet Sure. Young people who were helping me find my way around said, "You want to, want to, if you're so you're writing about this stuff. If this is what you're interested in, you got to talk to this guy. He's got the inside story." And and I so I say, yeah, "What's his name?" He goes, "Well, just call him Art. Everyone calls him Art." And I did, and it really was kind of so you know, kind of, don't you know, don't bother me, kid. Move move away. I'm trying to work here. And then very quickly was, "Oh wait, you're American, and you know the names of these bands. Let me we'll talk." Yeah, and that was our first kind of. Uh, getting to know each other. Okay, so what was the role of music? There is a book even written by a friend of mine. How the Beatles rocked the Kremlin. I think I think that the Beatles played a bigger role in the breakup of the Soviet Union, a bigger role than the CIA, for instance. The music was the main uh, source of soft power in the 60s, 70s and the 80s. So what was the state of music journalism at that point? Like, they obviously didn't have Rolling Stone at that point. And even then, I think in academic circles, like, cultural journalism was kind of seen as, not low class, but, like, it wasn't seen as this high it was art. not serious. Was that the same medium in Russia? Absolutely. If, and if you could take that, uh, kind of disrespecting the, the, the field, as it were, and, you know, cube it 
that's more of what it is, was in the Soviet <laughs> Union because not only were there, uh, we at least in the West had certain venues for publishing serious criticism, serious commentary, uh, not just pop culture, but even kind of sub pop subculture, mm -hmm. which is really what we were talking about in the case of Russian Soviet rock at this time. It was, yes, there was the official Leningrad rock club, but it was what was going on below it. I love the term, in fact, in Russian, right? Batpolya, this idea it's literally under the floorboards <laughs> because that's where it was taking place. It was in people's basements. You would find out, okay, the band has just played here. Where will they play next? You know, at Kostya's place, their house, here's the address. It'll wow. look for the basement. Right. right. Wow. And you go to the basement. So literally, Patbolia is where you heard the real music that was behind what was officially being produced. And so nothing was being written about that. Nothing was, you know, people like Troitsky were there recording all this. He would eventually put it into his book, um, formally, officially, I suppose, finished in 86 published unofficially in 1987 uh, in the U.S. as back in the USSR. In fact, he, he always joked that the title was more the West's idea than his own mm -hmm. because of, he, he was a big Beatles fan, but the idea of Snovo Vesasasar was not, didn't sound quite the way it does in Russian as it does in English. But nonetheless, he's, he's since then really bought, kind of bought into that as one of his trademarks. Um, and, and it only appeared in Russian in 1988 under Gorbachev. Uh, but an, in serial format in a in a teen magazine, right? So you got 15 months worth of this journal, Radnik, published in Lithuania, that had 10 or 12 pages of his uh, book published at, every month. Mm -hmm. And everyone read it. Everyone wanted to read it and kept following it. But that's kind of how the word got out. So very much tough to get the word out. And so when, when did the first kind of records of the bands that were playing at Leningradsky Rock Club come out? I mean, were people going home and listening to them at home? And so officially, Melodia starts to publish these uh, fairly early on in the Gorbachev years. So really by the end of 85, we wow. see our first compilation uh, records. So just simply be called Leningradsky Rock Club. And then you would see the names Alisa, uh, Strani, Igri, and so forth of the bands that were, were played there. But that was also the lead-in. Once they could be published in the format of these compilations, the bands got then the, um, what do one call it, I guess, courage more than anything mm -hmm. else, not to mention license, then to have their own records published on Melodia. So you, you also saw the very first Victor Tsoi and Kino band records officially coming out around this time, around 86, 7, 8. And was that like a hot commodity where it's like, let's go home, listen to it right now? Massive, yeah. massive. And indeed, so here's now the trick to that lengthy answer. Uh, so they're officially published by Melodia, and we all think, well, there it is. Soviets are getting what they asked for. Public demands, we want to hear rock music, here it is. Well, not quite. Mm -hmm. Do you look at the records published in that time, the vast majority will, will have the titles printed in Russian, but also in, in English, because they were specifically to go for sale in the so-called Bidioska stores, the hard currency stores that were really catering only to outsiders mm -hmm. who could pay hard currency for these goods. So what, what wound up happening, and this was kind of, this was my life and welcome to it in the 1980s, was I would take whatever I was getting in my Fulbright stipend, buy dozens of these records. Literally, I remember, I still remember when the first Kino record came out, I bought 25 copies <laughs> and was looked at, the woman looking at me really, and, and as soon as she even got the slightest inkling that I understood some Russian, quickly asked me, 
а вы кто? Фарсовчик? Bad assumption because I certainly could have done that and made myself about 20 times yeah. what I just paid for them. The no, I was giving them out to my friends who I know were desperate to get them and couldn't find them in the regular melodious stores. And a lot of us did that. We all did that. Um, also, big was to buy the single LP, the record, take it back to our dorm room, hook it up as best we could to our Walkman, a little Sony cassette player, and just crank out copies of it. That we then gave away. So all of this was kind of our own samizdat that we would do of create, getting the one legitimate copy we could buy. Melodia figured out fairly early on and re did restrict us to two copies of any record at a time. So we all were making multiple mm -hmm. trips to multiple Rydioski to buy these things up. Yeah. So how are these artists paying their bills at this time? You're not describing like an entirely lucrative market. I mean, yeah. they're living off free lunches and yes. Fulbright stipends, yeah, pretty yes. much. They're, they're uh, as, uh, to borrow the old the old term, the kindness of strangers, <laughs> right? I mean, literally living off of what uh, how people are being good to them. So yes, they were getting meager salary stipends, whatever you want to call them. Uh, uh, you, they would get paid to perform in Leningradsky Rock Club. They would get paid to do certain gigs at places like. Um, Park Gorky was one of the places where they were in the 80s, mid-80s, allowed to perform uh, in Moscow. Moscow was much more, uh, was a little tighter, actually. Peter was where, uh, Leningrad at the time, was where everyone went who was serious about trying to get a contract to publish, to, to, to record. Moscow had a lot of great underground places, but it was actually a tougher, I think being so close to the capital, mm -hmm. it was yeah. a tougher egg yeah. to crack, a nut to crack for them. So um, uh, you, you didn't get quite as much, but no, they lived from... Uh, I say paycheck to paycheck, but really it was kind of stipend to stipend, mm -hmm. little bits of money that they would get from either the clubs. Um, they would literally, literally pass around a hat during the gigs mm -hmm. wherever they were playing. Just so people would drop in kopecks, a few rubles. If there happened to be some Fulbrighters in there, you know, we would throw in a couple right. of tenors, and you know, ten bucks to them was like getting a bar of gold tossed into this. Well, there's hat no church collection plates, I imagine. That was the no, there were no churches. They, they had to improvise yeah. what they were using yeah. for, for that. So that kind of sounds like sort of like yeah. I'm thinking of inside Lewin Davis, like yeah. the folk scene in the West Village in the '60s. Absolutely. There's no money whatsoever, right. but it was just literally that people enjoyed this yeah. and they were going to give yeah, whatever they the could. Passion, right? The passion for doing it. They and they also, you know, really did enjoy. I think seeing wasn't simply that they as artists enjoyed the music and writing it, performing it. They really loved to see the way the audience reacted mm -hmm. to it. For the Soviets, it was very much reminded me so much of my very my early childhood with the Beatles and the Stones and everyone else. Every time a new group would come out, even a kind of second tier group, whether mm -hmm. it was, you know, uh, Herman's Hermits from Britain or the Monkees here in the state, didn't matter. Every time a new group came out, there was this kind of frenzy mm -hmm. of, you know, uh, we're, you know the, the circle's getting wider, wider, wider of more and more of these groups, more music, different things to listen to. That's what I saw in the 80s in mm -hmm. Soviet Union was every time one of these new bands would come out, you'd see the this incredible reaction of, good, that's one more. We're not losing a group, we're getting a new group, that kind of thing, yeah. I mean, whenever I think of just Russian rock, rock music in general, like if Y is Russian rock music and X is American rock music, it's like X minus 15 or so. So right now, the the Russian rock music I hear, it sounds like that sort of early 2000s rock. American, like right. there's two or three chords and we're going to play it really fast and it's going to be loud. Yeah. Was, the, was the sound in the 80s, did it sound a little older for American audience or was this 
pretty similar to what you're hearing back home. You've hit on a topic that I think Troitsky is the most interested in, and that is what makes Russian rock Russian, as opposed Mm -hmm. to being reductive of Western rock or or anything else, anything else musically. And there were tons of bands that were extremely reductive. Mm -hmm. I said things like, you know, the early boogie-woogie bands that came in played boogie-woogie, the very simple, you know, lowering bass line that would then come back up. It was a nice dance music, but it was was good Western boogie-woogie being sung in Russian. Uh, There were cover bands, dozens of them, Beatles, Stones, you name the band, there were cover bands for every one of them. Mm -hmm. But then there were other things. And what made them to me particularly Russian was you would hear a, a Russian ear. I always was told, you know, keep listening to the span and you work on, you'll develop your Russian ear. And I finally, after years and years, decades of doing this, figured out what they mean by that. So there are certain parts of Russian folk. There are certain parts of me. I, I love it because I was made, made by the 90s. I knew how to talk about this in better terms that I could under, understand myself from the U.S. Things like conjunto in uh, here in, in Texas and on the border. How did conjunto Tex-Mex music get things like an accordion an, uh, uh, that sounded very Central European? How did it get basso sexto, which sounds very Mexican? And then how did it get trumpets? that sound very Western. And it is precisely in the name of the word conjunto means all together, right? And that's what it was. It was taking this sound from Poland and Czech lands that we had here in Texas with the accordion, the polka, and then taking the basso sexto from Mexico and then taking the trumpets from the uh, Irish Texans, in fact, the stomp and everything that so much a part of what I grew up with in Tex-Mex culture was actually brought in through Ireland. So that's what was happening, in a sense, in Russia, was they were getting these bits and pieces of what the world recognizes rock music now and infusing it with what they understood was still very much Russian. You hear this today even in bands that started, late 90s bands in particular, uh, Splin, Bidva, uh, Smyslavia Galutsinatsi, a lot of these very... Russian-sounding rock bands that wouldn't be mistaken, uh, that's kind of the the trick to me, is if you simply translated the words into English, would they be mistaken for a Western rock band? Nah, Mm -hmm. they wouldn't. There's something about the sound, and you have to pick it apart to see what's going on there. I mean, I should say, there's nothing obscene about being derivative in rock and roll. I mean, no. you don't have that much no. flexibility. No, I mean, that's, that's in fact, part of being derivative is almost, you've got to kind of buy into the myth, right? To right. say, to make us legit, we have to have certain descending bass lines. Mm-hmm. We have to have these things that mark what good rock is like, blues lines, right? Mm-hmm. You want certain things that right away to go, oh, that's Jimi Hendrix. Right. I hear that in your guitar, and that's a compliment to mm-hmm. be able to say that to someone. But then you have to have someone that makes you who you are as a band so that you have a shelf life, staying power. Yeah. Right, and I remember that our, our my old professor, Richard Robert, he played us a video of a side-by-side of a Soviet band, and he said, who, who does this sound like? Who is this? Who are they ripping off? And then he played the American. He had like, you know, nine or ten examples of this, and it was it was really fascinating. For me, right, getting back to, to, to that point of right. when it kind of becomes Russian, to me it seems like it would really start to become Russian when there's kind of self-reference to 
kind of a base of Russian things that have already developed. And I, it probably has something to do with Vysotsky and then these, these bands in the 70s and 80s start, you know, referencing him and his, his work. That's a, that's a, a very good uh, kind of moment in Russian music history to pull out are the bards, right? Yeah. The groups, or groups, I should say artists, that came out of post-war Russia right. who did have an exclusively Russian sound. They sounded like nothing else in the West. Everyone says, oh, well, this is, you know, the Russian Elvis Presley or the, you know, please. It's, sure, in terms of pop culture, if you want to try to evoke the kind of popularity and, in fact, the madness that went around artists like Shana Bichevskaya, Bulata Kudrava, Yuli Kim, Vladimir Vysotsky, these were artists who wrote their own pieces, from, I mean, to call it here, you know, if you want to try to do that, how, do, how does an American find the Russian soul? Really get into the bards, because the bards wrote from beyond the heart. Для меня эта ночь вне закона. Я пишу по ночам больше тем. Я хватаюсь за диск телефона. These are songs that are about life, about this, this Russian spirit. Um, and then perform them so you don't get any of this. I'm a songwriter. No, I'm a singer-songwriter. Oh, and I play my own instrument. Oh, and I produce my own music, right? The whole thing. Those, um, that inspiration that lasted from the 50s through the 60s into the 70s and even some who lasted to the end of the Soviet Union of the bards have now turned into something a little different now uh, in terms of sound called chanson. But the bards then really did have this sound that was so incorporated, has been so incorporated into Russian rock. And again, you hear it in the voices, you hear it in the themes. Uh, I love the fact that you called it, in a sense, referential and self-referential because they know, groups like Spleen know they're borrowing from the bards and they then kind of make right. it tip their hats yes. and say, yes, yes, this is my little little tribute to Wysotsky here right. that I'm about to sing and you'll hear it in my voice. Yeah. Rock music, you know, Western music in general and Western culture in general, including even Hollywood, you know, they became darlings of tens of millions of Soviets and they've totally corrupted their belief in the communist system because their favorite music was Western their favorite actors were Western. You know, the things that they really fancied, they came from somewhere else. How can you uh, manage a country where the majority, or at least the majority of young part of the population, they, you know, they don't give a spit about, uh, about your communist uh, culture, about your communist beliefs, about your communist everything. And this was mostly because of music. So do you just want to like walk us through Russian music? Was that sort of the purpose of what you're looking for here? I mean, if you want to go 60s through, like, cause I know, yeah. I know, you know, I know some of the people right. you're saying, but right. if we're going to talk to someone interested in this stuff who lived in Russia their whole lives, who do we need to know? 
So I said my, my entree into the Soviet Union was 79. What did I know before I got there? Uh, in 79, getting any artifacts of pop culture was really hard. Getting the single issue of Pravda delivered to your school maybe once a week was the high point of, oh, this is my contact with the culture. So whom did I, you know, what did I know about about Russian uh, uh, rock pop at the time? I had a professor at Bryn Mawr College who was very into Vysotsky. Um, this was already toward the end of his career. We had no idea, of course, a year later, 79, in 1980, he would he would die. But he was very into Wisotsky and some of the other bards. We would get bits and pieces of the legit music from the time. So Ala Pugacheva, who's still around, she, like, I think, our kind of equivalents of Cher and Barbara Streisand, will just simply never go away. There will always be fixtures of the Russian musical scene. Um, a little bit of Streisand, uh, sorry, Streisand, a little bit of Pugacheva, uh, Sofia Rotaru. These were the kind of parts of the, the stable of Melodia, what they labeled as Sovietsky rock, even though there was nothing rock about them. Mm-hmm. These were MOR, middle of the road, singy, not interesting. You know, Rotaru was one of her first hits, was all about how great it is to be in, in the Soviet Union. And she was, at the time, earnest about it, right? You know, this, this got her recorded. I mean, now she sings very different kinds of songs. Anyway, so we listened to those. And when I got to, to Leningrad in 79, that's what you saw on the streets. Um, what I found really interesting that I didn't know, wasn't prepared for, was the question of how does one get this music that was there? Well, there were these hard currency stores. That's where I tended to get everything. But what I did see for sale were these very strange-looking, these things called gipki plastinki. They would little almost made of newsprint folder that would be printed on the front that would say you know Yuri Antonov and it would have a very bad image of him printed there and then the name of the song and you open it up you paid like 10 kopecks for these they were really really cheap and there'd be a very thin I should have brought one in in fact a very thin blue plastic that tends the term gipki plastinki right they were flexible little cheap records you could play them maybe 10 times before they wore out oh wow uh, but that's how music was originally distributed cheaply. And that was how most Russian Soviet citizens actually got it, were in these cheap formats rather than the full-size LP. Mm-hmm. You got the small little things. They were affordable. And, of course, the first thing you did was you very carefully you didn't touch it until you were ready to transfer that recording onto, onto reel-to-reel tape or something mm-hmm. that would last a bit longer. So you did get a little of some of these groups starting out fairly early. But as I said, I was lucky that that was my only year that I felt this kind of rock deficit, that it, I was just hearing these middle-of-the-road bands that everyone else was listening to. By the time I went back in 19, late 80, fall of 1980, for uh, 80-81, already uh, Leningrad Rock Club was starting up in 1981, and by that time people were talking Russian. I had also had a little bit more Russian, <laughs> so I was able to ask the right questions to get in and to places to say, so what? What? how would you listen, you know, are you listening to Ala Pugacheva? And they agree. Please, you know, I listen to it because it's being played everywhere. I have to hear it, but I don't listen to it. I'm listening to these bands. And so how do I hear those? And that's when things kind of started opening up. And I realized there was a whole nother world out there of, of rock music that was not through Melodia Records. Oh, my 
to jump too far ahead, uh, but I'm thinking just like post-wall. I mean, we've talked about the effect mm-hmm. Russian rock might have had on the end of the USSR. What is happening in the mid-90s with Russian rock? I mean, everything about Russian culture is just kind of dying, I guess, if you want to be harsh about yeah. it. But so where's yeah. rock and roll in that? So as we hit the, the 90s, and in the Russian's wonderful term, the Lichia Divinostia, right? The mad, the crazy, the insane 90s for all kinds of reasons. So true. Um, uh, what So what changes that to me makes rock not only not die as it could have in this period of cultural upheaval, but actually thrive? And that is that Melodia finally, the, the, the grip that it's had on music in the Soviet Union uh, begins to fall apart and private groups, Gorbachev and uh, his successor Yeltsin, allow non-Russian record companies, well, actually Russian record companies, to form, Soyuz being the big one that will replace Melodia in the 1990s and early 2000s, but then other outside Russian groups, uh, sorry, record producers coming in to bring new music, produce it. Um, They put up the capital, the venture capital, they find the groups, they cultivate them, they record them, they distribute them, they advertise them. And suddenly you would see these things called presentatia. This is a a new group coming out and be in front of and they'd name the place so sometimes Melodia would do this too but they would often be in front of a store shop Goom actually was big at allowing these to happen within on the, that kind of bal- balconied area in yeah. the middle of Goom you would suddenly say you know, new group Mumitrol being debuted in Moscow and crowds would gather they'd play a quick set and sell the CDs at, during the set that's how the bands kind of took off um, largely to get to a specific part of your question that I've always found really interesting myself as I wrote about this period was where Russian, maybe this kind of ties together a couple of the questions you've asked earlier. So the big movements in the West, things like grunge, that quickly translated into a Russian experience. In fact, if any, there was any one single musical movement in the States after Rhythm and Blues, which very much spoke to the Russian soul, it was grunge. Mm-hmm. Grunge is the number two. Um, Kurt Cobain to present day is still revered in Russia the way uh, a saint would be, literally. There are fanzines, there are blogs, there's everything on Kurt Cobain. He lives on. Um, Grunge transformed the new Russian rock, and groups like Bidva, Splin, Axion, all of these would not exist without the grunge movement getting that those deeper voices. We weren't getting these kind of tenors men singing singing rock songs, but rather these real deep bass and even contrabass voices singing the music suddenly from from inspired by grunge. So that helped transform it even more and allow <clears throat> allow Russian rock to get its own voice in the 90s. It's so funny you mentioned Kirk Cobain in this conversation because uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit is literally more than a feeling by Boston played faster. It's the exact same song. Yep. And we're talking about how new this is when it's the same yep. goddamn chords. So the Boston record comes out my freshman year in college. <laughs> I must have played, I, I went through two copies of it. I literally played it to death. Um, it was simply for us, again, you know, 18 sure. year olds in 1976. This was something we had never heard before in uh, a pop, you know, a pop record that would come out, be sold at Sam Goodies and so forth for you know three ninety nine. And oh my God, this was this was a new sound, the Boston sound, right? Literally, Boston sound played by the band Boston. And indeed, yeah, smells like Teen Spirit. That is the exact same. <laughs> uh, you watch, in fact, you can watch Cobain's arm move on his guitar, and it's exactly the same that you would see if you played a video of Boston 
Yeah, playing mm-hmm. more than a feeling. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Now, I'm just thinking too, it's like you're talking about sort of the diverse diversification of the record industry. Right. It gives the idea that the U.S. is like this diverse, very egalitarian landscape. I mean, like Interscope was radical because they had NWA and Nine Inch Nails. Yeah. Like there was nothing to actually yeah. in you know promote unique growth. Everyone just wanted the next Madonna. Yeah. No, I uh, I think the 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 rise of alternative and with a capital A alternative music in the U.S. in the '90s, college bands right, um, r- made us all realize how not unlike certain types of, I don't want to say totalitarian, it doesn't have to be that, but very restricted markets could be. And indeed, no, I I think there's the same in Britain, uh, in the States, that you'll see the big record companies getting control of, especially with multi-album deals, uh, multi-record releases, concert date schedules being controlled. Mm -hmm. They really, in a sense, transform an independent artist into basically a commercial product. Right. And a lot of bands, I think, in the 90s in the West started to respond against that. Grunge certainly led the way <clears throat> to that movement. But we had other bands, REM, uh, in excess from from, uh, mm. from Australia, coming in saying, we don't want to be part of the big megapolises either. We want to be kind of our, our we want to control our own right. artistic creations and so forth. And that shift that we felt here played out very nicely in Russia where they, in a funny way, having come from a truly totalitarian system in the Soviet Union, were already reacting against it in other venues. So music just seemed like a natural add-on to it, where for us it was sort of the place where you could feel it. Film industry's got the same kind of problem, too, if you look Mm -hmm. at indie film versus the the big studios. Mm -hmm. Sadly, the biggest indie film studio was Miramax, which has its... Yes. Yeah, we don't have to get into that. Yes. So you're listening to this rock in the 80s, and then you're you're continuing to listen to it into the 90s. D- did your motivation change between those times? Like, so in the 80s, you're it's very clear that this is the cool, edgy thing that's taking society in a new direction. In the 90s, we're in a new. St- I mean, it, now are you continuing yeah. to listen out of just your aesthetic? taste for the music it's i mean does that make any sense yeah, absolutely it? makes sense and so the, the first part of the answer is in in large part of course i just grew to really like the yeah. sound what i found um reassuring in that vein was was i just you know had i just become uh, you know a texas mexican russophile to the point that i <laughs> needed to just listen to russian rock uh and it was my my wife who kind of was my reality check so her first trip there our trip their first trip together was in 95 uh, and we went to two, uh, one venue, so a club band, and then to a larger outdoor event of two two bands that we were both uh, now both very fond of. I at the time didn't know she was going to be fond of them. She simply went mad over them. Just thought these this the sound was different. That it was you know she couldn't put her finger on what is it about this. Um, this was a group Bizva that we were listening to first. So uh, part. There's a little Belarusian sound in there as well, as both singers are from Minsk, um, that have been kind of transformed into a Moscow sound. Um, she couldn't quite put it, you know, what is it that's making me like this quite as much as I do? I identify with the voice, she said, you know, I love his voice, Lyova's voice in it in particular. But there was uh, this, this for me, good reality check that, no, okay, it really is good music, right? I'm not just being, I'm not just being, you know, kind of, well, I'm not going to give it up. This is my Russian music. This is what I, you know, what I, I, I kind of became a, 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 a human being listening to this. It was that partially, but it was also just good music. Now, that said, 
It wasn't the transformative music that the 80s stuff was, that a single song, like when Soy sang Pirimian, crowds went mad. I mean, there was like crowd control problems when the, the venues got bigger by around 1989, 1990, and they played Moscow stadiums. KGB were nervous about what they were going to do if the crowd suddenly started taking the place mm -hmm. apart yeah. because they couldn't control them. They weren't right. prepared to do that. Um, and songs like, you know, We Want Change resonated the same way a lot of, for my generation, uh, Creedence Clearwater songs Against the War sure. resonated sure. for us. Wow. And okay, so that said, that was not what was happening once we got to the 90s, but you did hear songs that now were about trying to re. Uh, the way I've written about this a little bit is trying to re-identify, re rediscover what the Russian soul is now at the end of the 20th century. So you had what everyone had now described as the Russian soul for centuries. Then there was the Russian soul no one talked about during the Soviet period for nearly 75 years. I mean, getting close to three generations. And now you had something completely different. And Russian young people in the 90s were trying to find out who the hell are we? Literally, are we, I mean, as, as Putin would ask, who are Russians? And it would be this, are we Europeans? Are we Asians? Are we something else? Indeed, it's where the popularization of the term Eurasia really gets fixed in the Russian language and in the Russian mentality that we're something of an in-between mm -hmm. you know, uh, hybrid yeah. uh, of different parts. And the music reflected that hybridity. That's yeah. what I think made it so listenable and so uh, kind of, I don't want to say mesmerizing, that's going a little far, but made us want to keep hearing more. It made it just really hook on to it. Yeah. Sure, that just got me thinking. I know that at St. Petersburg State University, there's a plaque, I forget the person's name, but to one of the academics who in the 90s started popularizing Yevrazistva, and it was just like a big, exactly. a big deal. And so now, and then Russian rock continues into the 2000s, and, you know, we have people, you know, we have Zemfira, mm -hmm. we have, you know, continued kind of commercialization, but we also have this very flourishing kind of underground, non-commercial uh, movement, yeah. and, and, but then, you know, and it continues, and then now we're getting into 2014, we're getting yeah. late. I know that, you know, so there's obviously Boris Kribenshikov, yep. he keeps coming out with albums in 2014, yep. 2018, and there, you know, people like Artemy Troitsky write these long poetic reviews of these of these albums and these songs, but it's kind of, but it's clear to the audience and right. the people of this older generation that kind of Russian rock is dying in a sense, and, you know, and there's this idea that only the older generation is even listening to this right, stuff. Right. But but I will say right. that it is, I mean, it is considered in St. Petersburg, amongst people my age, very cool. If Oh, did you hear the Grubinshikov album and did you listen to it yeah. and talk about it? So there is kind of this this homage and this respect for this older generation. And so I guess all of that is just a package to kind of set you up for the question of where where is what's the purpose of Russian rock today if it's still alive and where is it going? Ooh, ooh yes. <laughs> That's my excited sound. Uh -huh. uh, there is a purpose for it. It does still exist. It is still uh, relevant uh -huh. in the 20 teens now. And in fact, we're looking forward to what the 2020s will bring in, in, in Russian rock. say that uh, this music brought Western ideology, like capitalism, to Russia. It rather brought another form of ideology, which, which uh, simply is named freedom. You know, do what you want, be free. 
get high. Neither me nor all my friends and so on, we didn't, we didn't really care about capitalism versus socialism. We wanted to be free and we wanted to listen to groovy music and dance to it. And, and we saw that all the good music is produced elsewhere. So, uh, first, a, a, a rock um, staple to me is established. We know it's established when it lasts generations and gets reiterated by the succeeding generations. So the reason we have bands today in the West um, that play songs that sound suspiciously like <laughs> Boston or even go back the Beatles you know, is because those sounds made a difference. They made it made a difference. They made an impact on the musical scene at the time. Uh, that's one. As I say, is so when you talk, we talked just a minute ago about so where does Russia, what how does Russian rock then transform into from a an activist sound in the 80s to in a sense a kind of well if these are really lihia divanosti are we just lihia bandi you know these ensemble that are just kind of playing our music and spewing our sound no they they again as I said we're working on this new identification of who are we we young Russians now in the 2000s. Big shift. So, uh, interesting thing is, we get into our Gen Z here in the States, in the West, how Gen Z has identified itself now emerging in Russia is, and think about this again, right? Um, the generation right now that you would see as freshmen in colleges in Russia have never known Russia without Putin. Right? We bring that, mm -hmm. I keep coming back to that as something that's going to mark for you guys, your generation having to deal with the problems of that kind of longevity that we we've never seen, not even with Roosevelt in the States, did we see that kind of monolithic rule for this many years. Okay, that said, so what is it then that, that Russian rock of the 20-teens and 2020s has, has had to evolve into? It's had to once again become very political. And indeed, I'll go further, politicized, mm -hmm. so that you get bands that are Putin bands, That is, he invites them to the Kremlin. They play at Putin events. Um, they uh, will play at anti-Ukraine events. They will play at, play at pro-Crimea events. Zemfira speaks and mentions Zemfira got herself in a bit of trouble by mm -hmm. having been vocally uh, representing LGBTQ communities for so long and yeah. all, and being such an activist that we all held dear to our hearts mm -hmm. as, oh, she's one of us. And then suddenly she plays at a pro-Crimea Uh, the thing and had to really reel that back to get her audience back because they really did rebel against her moving in that direction and she had to kind of in a sense distance herself from it same with Nachni Snipery uh, Diana Arbenina has had the same kind of problem all that said you've got the bands like um, uh, who am I thinking of uh, Agatha Christie going back to the 1990s again it's very much a Putin band these markers now of sort of like you know, you know we talk about here they've become kind of jokes standing jokes like Scott Bayo and his affinity for Trump they we, we just kind of laugh at it now saying Chachi loves Trump right that kind of um, thing of, of, of oh Agatha Christie this is it's a has-been band you know goth band left over from the 90s mm -hmm. that can play for Trump hooray yeah. but then we get so same generation bands like Machine Vremeni one of the first premier Russian rock bands of the actually late 70s was produced its first bit in 1978-79 continues to produce especially under Makarevich the, the lead now considered to be the anti 
pro-Ukraine, anti-Crimean right. acquisition, all of that. So they're now persona non grata for the, the Putin generation. Now we listen again. They ask, well, whom do you, you know? Who do you listen to? And it becomes a kind of marker of, well, where are your politics? Because yeah. depending on what you listen to and who you listen to, that says volumes about what you believe about the next direction of Russia. So now the po- politics are back. All oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, what yeah. this makes me think of is the whole saga with Yuri Shevchuk of DDT, who yeah. had those things. But then he, because of his conflicts, he kind of, as far as I'm aware, kind of left the game, basically. He really have. Yeah. Unfortunately, I mean, really, it would be that, you know, if you suddenly, you know, Mick Jagger were to leave the scene entirely and say, well, he's yeah. just not part of what we all knew was the, the history of, of, of rock music in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, right? And Shifchuk is the same for Russian rock, for indigenous rock, yeah. Right. I mean, the other thing that, that comes to mind is we're talking about rock. I mean, there are other genres of of contemporary Russian music and Russian music. And I think that be, for cultural reasons, historical reasons, there is kind of this rock imperialism and right. kind of the status and the way that we, why, why are we talking about Russian rock and not, you know, other pop or whatever, and uh, now rap is becoming so popular. It's just as political. The exact same Absolutely. dynamics. Pop music, the exact same dynamics. Um, I remember last time we had you on, we talked about Manetachka and her song, yeah. and I just think it's hilarious <laughs> that she's just making fun of that whole ni- the way the '90s is, is is talked about. How is ro- I mean, how does rock react to the proliferation of other kind of genres um, that are? that are also getting politicized and how does it kind of continue to hold its niche when these other things, particularly rap is just gaining more popularity. That's a terrific question. Uh, that's probably got more, uh, so many little complexities, layers to it that I'll, 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 I'll I'll try to just kind of give it a, a packaged answer almost. So, um, I think on the one side there is, there are a number of rock groups who simply would be dismissive of other genres as not being relevant, being Mm -hmm. simply flash in the pan popular. It's what you do because everyone else is doing it. Um, they'll often, I mean, if we talk, what is the most popular form of music in the Russian urban scene right now? It's not rock, nor is it rap, actually. It's house, right? It's mm-hmm. club music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's club music because that's what you do. You listen yeah. to music so you can... <laughs> and it's just, we listen to it, why? So you can have, you know, chill out room, as they lovingly call them, right? Mm-hmm. Chill out. Um, uh, grass is back, literally, right? Mm-hmm. Smoking, smoking pot yeah. is back. Not, I'm not sure it ever fully left <laughs> the Russian scene, but it's yeah. really, really back heavy now, and that's all part of. So, music is this kind of. Hey, I don't want to. I don't want politics in my music. I don't want to hear a band, whether whether they're Ukraine or whether they're you know Putin. I don't want to. I don't want to mess with that. The reason I'm listening to music is because I don't want to think about that. I want to chill out. So there is that side that makes house music. Um, certain types of, of uh, uh, electronica, very, very, very popular, ongoing. For about saying, we're getting past the 10-year mark, about 15-year mark on that. But then there's the side of rock that says, not just live and let live, but indeed the point of us becoming, continuing to be relevant, has to do with us taking in what people really are listening to. And in my view, the best rock bands, the ones I still listen to a great as much as they're willing to put out stuff I, I i get it i actually i'm still old school i still buy cds i'm they're like so hard to find now in the <laughs> yeah, cities yeah. you can find where do you buy a cd <laughs> but i want the little thing i yeah. want the liner notes i want the object um i listen to them because they take these contemporary sounds knowing that they are in a sense the the pulse of what other russians are listening to and incorporate them 
they grow, they develop, they, they merge. Um, there's such wonderful hybridity in the Russian rock sound now. Yeah, you can hear stuff that you say really derivative. Oh, oh that's just like The Cure 1982. Oh, that still sounds like. And, you, and we hear them and we kind of just line them out. They're not going to last long. But the core bands that are still getting big crowds that still get this. What I love to is that you know they'll play a small club on Thursday and then on Friday go play a, a stadium. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love the accessibility. Yeah. I love the fa- and that everybody goes. Everyone yeah. goes. You can ticket. There's there's some ticket you can afford. Right. Some ticket or another you can afford. And those bands really do pay attention to these other trends and tendencies that have been weaving into 21st century culture. Yeah. Yeah. I've just kind of been the American consultant, I feel like, in this podcast. But, I mean, if, you know, we talk about rock and roll as derivative, I think right now in America it's, like, necrophilic. I mean, we're just, you know, rejuvenating these bands from the 70s and 80s and putting a contemporary style. I'm just thinking of Grateful Dead and John Mayer. Like, it's 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 almost cynical to an extent. But, I mean, it's... All right, I'm already the, offended by even putting those two names in the same breath, yeah. but... <laughs> it's the disinterest in creating something yes. new. It's yes. just like, we'll put the Rolling Stones out there. They can't do anything, but it's going to sell out a stadium for some reason. Um, I don't know if Russia is the same sort of... I, I, I've seen it happen. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, literally last summer, they're seeing bands like, well, indeed it was Dedate that was uh, playing both Moscow and Petersburg. Oh, really? Uh, summer of... That would have been summer 18 uh, and sold out. Uh, Budva is but still playing. Budva plays un, just, they're unstoppable. Yeah. Um, we were in the, the club, Mumitrol, in December of, of this just past year. And, and they, they had already sold out the club date they had for six months from then. So as soon as they mm-hmm. say we're playing, they sell out. They played here in Houston not long ago yeah. and sold out as wow. well. So no, um, yeah, these are you know it's funny because I still think of them as these are the these are the hit bands and all. Of course, they're my age now, mm-hmm. right? We're all we're all pushing late fifties, early sixties, and and still not about to stop. Um, I do see though, because I think your your question has a, a such real validity to it. Um, I do see a, a pushback of. We will not, we Russian bands, won't die out of our own disinterest. It's not going to be because we let ourselves die. You know, we're we're going to go out fight. If we're going to go out, we're going out fighting. And that's where I do get this sense that they not only hear what's being uh, what's being played around them, they also very much, they are still influenced, not in, again, derivative or reductive way of what's being played in Europe and in the States, but rather... What is everyone else listening to and why is it relevant? Why is it being listened to right now? Mm-hmm. You know, why is, and indeed that's where to me rap comes in. Rap, which immediately sounds like, oh, well, you just stole that from, you know, are you, is it the only, you know, only interesting question to ask, is it East Coast or West Coast, mm-hmm. right? How, how are you playing? And listen to Russian rap in the 21st century. It's a different animal. Mm-hmm. It is not it's neither East Coast nor West yeah, Coast. It's, it's not American rap at all. Mm-hmm. Um, watch out for, he, he says now prophetically, watch out for in probably by the end of this year, I should get a, a date for it, um, uh, Andrei Gelastimov, the wonderful, wonderful author of mostly of, of uh, well, of fiction, but of all kinds of fiction, long and short. His bu- a bu- book he's got, I know he's been researching it the last two years, so I think it is due to come out now, is a fictional account of a Russian rapper that's based 
entirely on the life and work of the rapper Basta, mm-hmm. whom he's been shadowing now for the last two years. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so Golosimoth is, is the generation uh, 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 after mine. So he's he's younger, but not by a whole lot. He's still, I mean, he's... he's we're, he's still, as he would put it, I'm, I'm, I'm lovingly middle-aged. <laughs> so he's middle-aged now, and yet he has, uh, if you watch his uh, Instagram feed, he simply, every day that he's with this guy, writes the preface of, another day I feel two days younger than the day before. Mm-hmm. That, it's made, that this has made him feel, not simply by, oh, I'm here with a cool rapper, but he says, I get infused by the energy that his these sellout crowds bring. He will do, he, Basta, will do a, a, a concert for like nothing, you know, just for a set fee mm-hmm. for, let's say, I'm, and I'm just, you know, say, say a thousand people to show up. The state of the area, not stadium, but the, uh, the area that he's booked out may hold 5,000 and he's got the area for a thousand and 6,000 people will show up. Mm. I mean, they, he simply overfills wherever he, wherever he is. And it is precisely because the rap that he's, performing uh, speaks to them in in incredibly contemporary, uh, relevant ways. Again, Gen Z wants everything to be not about me, but to be uh, uh, relevant to me, needs to speak to me, right? I mean, so tell, tell me about my life, tell me so I can better understand it. And that's what the good rappers do. And I'm not putting Boss at the very top, but he is one of the more... Um, I would say progressive of the rappers out there uh, from that are that are absolutely all all Russian rappers that are out there now. He's one of the the really good ones. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's basically yeah. what I was trying to get at in my question earlier. Because there's kind of amongst people of our age, there's kind of two schools. There's the people who have no you know respect the older generation rockers, listen to mm-hmm. it, take the time, and there's other generation who's like. I already know that that stuff is just doesn't speak to doesn't me speak at to all. Me anymore, yeah. And in, in fact, the, the grand irony is that these rappers, they are what those people were in the eighties. And I, I'm, I'm already cognizant of that. Yeah. And this is where all the interesting stuff is going on anyway. So why am I going to waste my time kind yeah. of deal? Yeah. Um, and a rap is just a, such a good acid test in that question of yes. like, do you care about the politicism of your music? And I mean, for the people who just like, there are people in just the camp of like, rap is not music. I don't listen to it. Right. And I just like, if you say that to me, I think you're racist because you can't have wow. seen Wu-Tang wow. arise. Wow. These Good 19 point. year olds from Staten Island who had no education or whatever. And they put together these incredible albums. Right. Like you're wrong. You're right. wrong to say that. Right. And if you don't want politicism in your music and you love country music, well, you're not really, it's not really what you're doing. Yeah. Look at the Dixie Chicks. They were blackballed for Becoming political in the slightest. Absolutely. And not even within their music, just mm-hmm. simply stating, here's here's where my politics lie, yeah. right? It's not about my music at all. It's simply who I am as a human being. No, you're absolutely mm-hmm. right. And I think um, the early incarnations, you know, in the early 90s, um, uh, Legal in Business, for example, who came out with the first these, this first iteration of commercial Russian rap that was nothing more than translations of Western American style rap into a Russian oh parlance. Just, I think they, I think they may have put off at least part of a generation mm. as, can't we do better than that? I mean, can we come up with something new? Is it, is it has it kind of echoing your question before has our own indigenous native Raisiski rock reached the point that it can't survive on its own? Have we used up all the oxygen in the room and now we just need to st- from other 
cultures, venues, uh, right. uh, styles, and just turn them into Russian. Is that where we are now? It was a, it was a wake up call, I think, uh, for all you know. You heard, I'll, I'll say a dirty word in Russian here, Detsal. Right, so that's all. So nothing now. This is great. That means that it, in two generations, the name no longer means anything. <laughs> that makes me happy. So Detzel was a, a singer for Ligalny Business. He also sang a cup for a couple of other rap groups, and then ultimately went on his own to become actually a a, 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 a phenomenon in that he sold records. But they were these incredibly at, at the age of fifteen, I want to say, derivative. Uh, reimaginings of American, mostly LA style rap mm. into into Russian, including imagine. And I always say, imagine this: a blue-eyed Russian in dreadlocks. <laughs> I kid you not. Yes. And the you know the shorts down to his uh, thighs hanging. Yeah, it was it was sad. It was actually very sad to watch back mm. in the day. And thinking, yeah, this is the end, not just of Russian rock, but of Russian music. <laughs> anything ever, ever again. Uh, Detzel grew up. I think he grew out of it, grew over it, got over it and so forth. And Russian rap took a serious turn toward a kind of indigenous Russian rap that uh, is very different now. Mm-hmm. Every Even even the kind of popularized things like uh, artists like uh, Timothy and so forth that just sell records, even his music still has more of a... A, a Russian kind of Russian core to it, mm-hmm. not a core that's been stolen from the U.S. or or Britain. Yeah, and certainly the the contemporary ones now, Busta included, are very very good on their own. I mean, I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I, I really did want you to dish on like, <laughs> I like Nautili is better than, you know, Kino or, or this is who I like and, and this is who I'm, you know, overrated, underrated kind of deal. So I go with, with, with the same thing I would say about uh, talking about music in, in your, your home vernacular. If you're talking about, you know, English language, American or British rock, um, you listen to what you like. And so it's not going to be the same among the three of sure. us. We yeah. may differ on mm-hmm. certain bits. I really like, um, so I do, I do like good Russian rock needs to say something. It does need to make a point. So that's that's the first sort of sine qua non. It needs to, to have some relevant message, to use my <laughs> generation's term, a message to it. I like male voices, if it's a male-oriented rock group, that are lower. So that that's why I go in the Kino route, okay. the Nautilus route. Bidva Ratspleen. Yeah, love Spleen. Yeah, so I, do I. I. Yeah, uh, yeah. Vasilyev has to me one of the best rock voices of mm-hmm. this generation. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, women, the women who uh, to me have excelled, write almost all their own stuff, as do the men, but the women have not lagged in this at all. You know, none of this blistyashi stuff and all that papsa, but rather really the women, like Zinfir, as you mentioned before, who write their own music and then perform it themselves, yes. playing their own instruments, really to me excel. So, Nachni Snipery, Diana Arbenina, and so forth, all are just, I think they're just, just terrific. So, when you get then down to well, Kino or or uh, now, wow, <laughs> wow, that's a that's a tough one because I listen to them uh, pretty much concurrently. Right. So they they 
it's kind of like trying to uncouple them. Yeah. Uh, Where I can easily do Beatles or Stones. And this, in fact, my wife and I fall into that wonderful camp where, well, he's a Beatles guy. Well, she's a Stones. Well, there it is. One of them's right, one of them's wrong. One of them's right, one of them's wrong. (laughs) Right. There's always going to be two groups, the one you listen to, the one you wouldn't be caught dead listening to, right? And and yet we love both of them, right? Right. So it comes down to you love both of them. But probably because I... um, and it's not going to, it's not the cult of personality here. It's not that, you know, everyone says, well, everyone wants Kino to be the, the, the when you say Russian rock, it's Kino because archetype, because, because of course it's Saint Victor, mm-hmm. right? He died and some even say he was killed and oh, conspiracy theories. It wasn't that. I truly remember when I, the first time I saw him perform, um, that feeling of seeing for the first time Jim Morrison perform mm. And understanding two things. I think I got a real good understanding of gen- my, my development of gender politics as a 10-year-old when I saw Morrison in 68, um, that gender was not about being male or female at all. It wasn't about your anatomy. Because Morrison got came out onto stage and th- there was just this person up there that we all wanted. Everyone wanted his voice, his body, his soul, everything, all of us, gender notwithstanding in the sense of male, female. And the same was true with Soy. When this little diminutive man, I mean, he's reminded me in certain respect of Wysotsky in height, but much, much more, uh, much more delicate. He was very, you know, he was a strong guy. He did um, martial arts, but really just slip of a man walks out on stage all in black with that voice and the entire audience just goes mad just simply loses it and it was exactly that same sensation i had had 20 years earlier with um or yeah yeah would be exactly 1988 wow. 20 years earlier with wow. morrison so that's that's kind of what i look at there so that's you know batusov has that great same great voice and all that and a lot of the now fans really will say, "Oh, he's just like Jim Morrison. Uh-huh. He is Jim." Mor- and I, <laughs> not there for me. Mm-hmm. There's that X factor that I yeah. just can't name yeah. of that charisma. He's got something. There's clearly yeah. that. That's why I think they picked him to be in the, the Brat movies and so right. forth. I think that's one of the reasons he was kind of pulled out of, to be the sound of rock in the early '90s for um, for our hero for. Uh, uh, Da, da, uh, uh, Daniela right, exactly. in, in the Brat films yeah and that's funny because the doors are kind of notoriously slammed by music critics yeah because they said they had a couple sounds but you're discounting like the energy of Morrison I think yeah. Soy has the exact same sort so of I could not agree with that critics. more uh, I, I always think it's it's if you if you slam the doors you haven't seen them live mm-hmm. that's that or you didn't see them live because the recordings were very much manipulated I and mean, people did comment mm-hmm. on that a couple of the songs in fact sound creepily like you know a, a sort of lounge lizard type over orchestrated mm-hmm. uh, I, mean, I can't think it was CBS I'm not remembering who their label was now but whoever their la- label was really was like no 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 it's still 1972 we can't let this out unless we mm-hmm. really do you know work it over and they simply homogenized a lot of the right. really good Manzarek sound on his mm-hmm. on the organ and the guitar sound and especially the voice Morrison's voice got so manipulated in the recordings that you just didn't get that 
magic mm-hmm. that he could do on stage. No, it is a thing. It, there, part of it is sensual, sexual, but that's only a, that's like maybe a tenth of it. Right. There's the, what is the X factor has so much more to do with. Oh, the person is physically attractive. It's not. I mean, it's always a good example of that. He's because he's so. He was just this kind of. He could have been any any guy. Mm-hmm. And some guy playing a guitar up there, but as soon as he opened his mouth, there was just this, wow, what's he singing? Um, he had, I mean, we've all listened to him and so forth. You know his voice instantly. Yeah. No one mistakes that voice. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got a nasality to it. It's got a, almost as though is he a native speaker of Russian. So he's purposely bastardizing the sound system of Russian. Mm-hmm. The phrasing isn't typically Russian. He missed. Uh, places on purpose Mm -hmm. stress Mm -hmm. to make the rhythm work he does all kinds of things with the language and yet it's what we find i think most attractive about him is that charisma in, in in his performance yeah This is awesome. I mean, well, for me, you don't know what this is like for me. <laughs> I, I, no one, I, short of short of my own wife, no one will listen to me kind of go on and on about this this period. That that, um, uh, I mean, it was my life. It's just very funny I, when I, when I think of, you know, you know, did I ever purposely choose to to make rock the core of so much of what I wanted to do and in my academic uh, life and existence? I would no, not at all. And yet, mm-hmm. um, the sounds that play, you know, that whether it's on you know, now in your earbuds or whatever, or back in my day with my Walkman in my ears in the Moscow Metro, that music shaped everything about what I did mm-hmm. and what I was feeling about Russia and Soviet Union at the time. So the soundtrack for the Lost Boys must be like the biggest collision of your interests, yes. right? I yeah. think there's some, there, there <laughs> that ends with the door song, doesn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Yeah. And it's it's got, and it is indeed because it's playing on this kind of, it's a vampire thing too, right? Mm-hmm. This idea of what lives on forever. You got it in one. Yeah, 10 extra points on your final exam for that. (laughs) Well done. That's great punctuation. But thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you so much. This has been a true treat. Thank you. Thank you so much. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Empire's dormitories. It was so great after that one was that that podcast was put up. I heard from, I'm not kidding, from all I think all but one of my five roommates in that Leningrad dorm room. So that because I put up a bunch of pictures of my all my roommates on on Facebook, and I think two of them were on Facebook. But then they found all the rest of them. So yeah, we've got we found all of us. Okay, so what was the role of music? It was uh, large amount.